Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who do a little more policy lifting and probably not so much policy leaning. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. And I am delighted today to be joined by my regular co-host, Sharon Bessel. Sharon is a professor here at Crawford School. She's the ANU lead of the Individual Deprivation Measure Project. It's a brilliant project. You should check it out. And she's also editor of Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. Hello, Sharon. How are you? Hi, Matt, and I'm great. And how has your week been? It's been a good week. I said last week the teaching had begun and how fabulous that was. So I'm continuing to get to know my students and yeah, enjoying being in the classroom. Great stuff. Now, at the beginning of each podcast, we take a look back over the last seven days and pick out, you know, perhaps a one or two big key policy issues that have played out. So what's caught your eye in the wide world of public policy this week? One issue that has captured my attention, and it was an issue that I was listening to being discussed just this morning on the radio with Tanya Plibersek, talking about the fact that Labor have said should they win government, they will make um, safe abortion services available to women who need them. Um, And Plibersek was making the point that the the first policy intervention should be to make contraception available to ensure that people have a choice about planning pregnancies, but making the argument that in um, in a time of, of... um, what is often crisis for women who need to decide whether or not to continue with a, an unwanted pregnancy, um, that women should be able to access safe medical treatment to deal with that situation. Um, and I think this is such an important policy initiative, the fact that women don't have that choice in 2019 in Australia, I think is horrifying. Um, and of course, it varies on a state by state basis. But I also think it's a watch this space because it will be interesting to see just how controversial this announcement is. Will it be controversial? I mean, it, as you said, in in twenty nineteen, it strikes me as amazing that you know that we that we would even have to announce this as a policy that it's not already in place. Well, the poll suggests that some somewhere in the vicinity of eighty percent of Australians support women's right to choose. Um, I think there's a lot of evidence out there around the fact that women don't choose lightly. That this is a difficult and traumatic decision, but one where women should be supported when when that decision becomes necessary. Um, but I don't know. We do have a conservative element, both within the parliament, but also within the media and and sort of shaping broader debates. Um, it will be interesting to see. I mean, we saw so much controversy around the same-sex marriage debate um, where perhaps we wouldn't have anticipated some of the the very deep division and some of the, the sort of the vitriolic discussion around that. So it will be interesting, but I hope not confronting or depressing to see how this particular policy issue is, is debated. 
Yeah, well, fingers crossed on that. So that's what's caught Sharon's eye in policy over the last week. What about you, listeners? What have been the big key policy issues for for you? You can let us know on in all the usual ways on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum, on email, where we're podcast at policyforum.net, or you can join our Facebook podcast group. And if you haven't done it, why not pause the podcast for a second? Don't worry, we'll wait here for you. Sharon, you can have a sip of your tea while that's happening. Because on the Pod Squad group, you can join the gang to share your ideas with us. You can have a chat to other listeners and our presenters. Just find us on Facebook, type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar, and there we are. So today, we want to have a look at welfare policies. In February, the Department of the Senate published an eye-opening report on JobActive, which is the Australian government's employment service, saying that it was failing those it intended to serve. And in response, welfare groups accused the scheme of being a harsh bureaucratic nightmare, with the Australian Council of Social Services noting that Australia spends less than half the OECD average on employment services. But It's not just Australia's welfare schemes that have attracted wide criticism. The UK's universal credit scheme was absolutely blasted last year in a report by the UN rapporteur Philip Alston, who said that the scheme is cruel and misogynistic and was plunging people into misery and despair. So today we want to ask, why do policies that we refer to as welfare so often seem to end up so punitive in nature? And how do these schemes impact disadvantaged people? And can policymakers strike a better balance between providing social welfare and incentivizing people to find work? And what role might a universal basic income play in all of that? And we've got a great lineup of guests to discuss these questions, haven't we, Sharon? We have. This is a fantastic lineup. And these are such an important set of issues that we're going to be addressing. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. We have Dr. John Falzon, who is a senior fellow working on inequality and social justice at per capita. He's a sociologist, a poet and a social justice advocate and an incredibly powerful speaker. He was CEO of the St Vincent de Paul Society from 2006 to 2018 and I think a lot of our listeners would probably have heard John speak so powerfully and passionately in that capacity. Possibly the first time we've had a poet on the podcast as well. I think so and I'm kind of hoping he'll share some poetry with us. Some policy poetry. (laughs) Policy slam. His area of expertise, uh, policy issues relating to economic insecurity security, housing, homelessness, social insecurity and workers' rights and, of course, poetry. We also have um, Professor Bob Gregory. Bob is Emeritus Professor here at the ANU in the College of Business and Economics. His areas of expertise are economic development and growth, labour economics, welfare economics, urban and regional economics. And he's been President of the Economic Society of Australia um, for the period 1997 to 99, Editor of the Economic Record, and is which is one of Australia's leading economics journals. So a very strong economics theme there. And I don't know if Bob's a poll. And finally... Let's put him on the spot over that. Yeah, I think we should. Yeah. I think we should. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Dr. Sue Olney. Sue is a research fellow in the Public Service Research Group in the School of Business at UNSW here in Canberra. She's an honorary senior fellow in the Melbourne School of Government. Her research focuses on access and equity in employment, education, training and disability services in Australia, with a particular focus on the impact of reform of the public services on citizens who have complex needs. Um, And again, I don't know if she's a poet, but she may be. Once again, I think no one leaves this room until they have given us some uh, policy poetry. 
Oh, I'm just wondering what we might get. But worth 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 a try. That includes you, Sarah. <laughs> oh, I can hardly wait. You <laughs> it. Stay stay tuned. <laughs> So uh, before we get to that discussion, a reminder to all of you, please do get in contact with us. We love hearing from you on Facebook, on our Policy Forum pod group, uh, on Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum, or on email podcast at policyforum.net. And stick around after the main discussion, because we are going to be going over some of your questions, comments, and indeed suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's meet our panel. Well, thank you so much to all of you for joining us today. John Fausen, hello. Hi. Sue Olney, thank you. Hello. And Bob Gregory. Hi. Welcome to you all. Uh, Let's get this underway by having a look at Job Active for a start. That's come under fire as being punitive and unnecessarily harsh. Australia's remote Indigenous work for the Dole Scheme has also attracted significant criticism for doing more harm than good. And the Parents Next scheme was slammed by the Australian Human Rights Commission recently for entrenching poverty and inequality. So I want to start with a fairly broad question, and maybe I'll turn to you first, John. Why do so many of these policies that we refer to as welfare so often seem to end up being so punitive in nature? I think because uh, we we have the wrong starting point. Uh, so... Yeah, if you if you look at the recent history of reviews of our social security system, uh, the first and second McClure reviews, uh, the idea of of uh, of bringing aspects of the New Zealand social investment model, they seem to be starting from uh, the position of how do we get people off. Uh, Welfare, and the term welfare is used in a in a pejorative way, uh, a la the, the the United States usage. Uh, we've moved completely away from the whole notion of social security as social security. So what the system ends up uh, exemplifying is uh, a sense of social insecurity and a sense of shame and a sense of humiliation, and uh, and that people need to be uh, moved comp- uh, quickly off any kind of uh, receipt of, of income support. So that's entirely the wrong starting point, and it's, I, I think it's predicated on, on a, a neoliberal framework that, that says, you know, we, we really shouldn't have a social security system at all because it encourages laziness and it causes unemployment. Rather than looking at um, the, the the structural drivers of unemployment or the social relations of, of disability uh, or the politics of caring or the need to support people while they're studying uh, or, or uh, older, older people, whatever the case may be. So you're not looking at the needs of people and the and the, the structural uh, context. You're looking at this you know, this very dogged view that this is an evil in itself and it needs to be ended, which to me is akin to saying we should get rid of hospitals because no one wants to be there. You know, and it's true. You know, <laughs> no one wants to stay in a hospital, but we, we'd be really in a bad place if we didn't have them. Sue, what's your take on all of this? Uh, well, I think looking at it particularly from the point of view of the employment services system, um, we have swung to that that point where in order to uh, reduce pressure on the welfare budget, a lot of policy says anyone of working age that the government deems capable of working should be working. Uh, and so the entire system is focused on 
just the supply side of the market without looking at what work is available for people. So it concentrates on, um, it's based on the premise that you say, if individuals change their skills or behaviour or attitudes, they'll find a job. Now, we know that's not the case. There are many, many more people looking for work than work available. Plenty to unpick there, but I'm interested in your views here, Bob. Yeah, um, I like to uh, think of this in a long sweep, historical sense. So the way we got, quote, the welfare state, as it were, is that um, people dropped into it for a short period of time and then recovered one way or another. And, And that was sort of true in Australia right up until about 1975. Um, so in, say, 1966, I can tell you for a fact that if I tried hard, I could tell you the names of everybody on unemployment benefits. And the problem was that seven weeks later, I'd have to learn another bunch of names. But, you know, there were very few, uh, and people went through very fast. In fact, most unemployed people couldn't be bothered to go down and get the unemployment benefits because they could find jobs quickly. So from about 75 onwards, the welfare system started to grow very, very dramatically, in part because new schemes were invented, uh, more generous schemes were invented, uh, and the labour market started to fall apart in various ways, you know. So it grew and grew and grew. So by about 1990, we had roughly 20% of people in workforce age, 20%, on some sort of welfare scheme here. And by that, I mean disability payments, sole parent payments, you know, broad, very broadly defined. And so governments got very edgy about that everywhere. Uh, and so everywhere they started tightening up. Uh, and then if you want to tighten things up, then you want a narrative to hang it on. So you don't want to say, I'm going to tighten this up because all these poor people can't find jobs. You know, you start to demonise the group a little bit, uh, and that's happened. Uh, and as a result of that, all around the world, welfare, welfare schemes have got tougher. But I think when I was thinking about what I want to say, I think I want to say two very important points. Uh, The first point is that compared to the 1960s and so on, the average stay on welfare now is very much longer than before. So, you know, when people are on for six weeks or 12 weeks, it doesn't matter much. You just give them the money and off they go sort of thing. But once people are on for one year, two years, three years, four years, then the whole nature of what you're trying to do with the scheme changes. And the other thing that happens, unfortunately, is for large numbers of people, when they do get off, they come back again. So this particular spell mightn't be that long, but people typically get off and often come back. So as time goes by, this group of people change. So increasingly, you know, if you, it's, it's increasingly our welfare recipients are more and more disadvantaged as time goes by. You know, because they stay on so long, those who have got some sort of strength can get out, the rest will stay. And so I think the fact that there are so many and it's so expensive in some people's eyes has led to these views. But these views aren't Australian views. These are all around the world. I mean, they're worse in some countries. They're worse in the United States and they are in Northern Europe, but they're everywhere. And, and, and they've been growing in strength, really, I think. Bob, I wanted to pick up on on some of those issues that you've raised there and put it in the context of funding. Um, Australia is spending less than the OECD average on employment services. Mm. So I'm interested to hear your views on on why that is, but particularly how that fits into these kind of changes that you've described over time. And one interpretation of the decreased spending is that we become meaner as a society. Mm. Um, 
but I'm wondering, is it that values are perhaps shifting in response to the kind of historical trajectory that you've described? You know, are we as Australians thinking differently? Yeah, you know, I, I, that, I guess that was the point I was sort of trying to make. That is, I don't know about we as Australians, but policymakers are thinking differently. I mean, for example, and I shouldn't really say this, but I will. Uh, it's pretty. It looks certain that the Labor Party will be elected. The Labor Party has refused to say that it will increase New Start allowances. Now, you would think, New Start allowances, by the way, have fallen relative to incomes in the community, dramatically so. They're really quite low now compared to what they used to be. The Labor Party, who historically would be out there, has said, well, the latest I heard, that they would investigate the issue. So the, the elites and by that I mean the political elites and all that sort of are all hardened up against welfare. And occasionally they, they, they change, like on the national disability, there was a huge swing towards worrying more about people with disability, and there's been more worry about people with mental illness. But on the welfare system, there hasn't really, I think it's just getting harder, uh, and uh, I don't see that changing much, really. So we've, we've seen, you know, the, the sorts of, um, shifts that Bob's talking about and, and kind of an emerging consensus amongst political elites about how we should move forward with the welfare state. And I think it's fair to say as a consequence we've ended up with a much more punitive system. Do you see that as being by design or default? Oh, absolutely by design, I think. And in fact, I was going to come back to your comment about values shifting and say we're seeing costs shifting. That's why you're seeing employment services costing less. Uh, so this has, in effect, what, what's happening is that we've turned long-term unemployment particularly into an individual problem and not a problem that needs to be solved by the economy or society. Uh, and so in that framework, what's happening is that people who are persistently unemployed are going into the employment services system and being referred to other services. And the cost of those services is not being factored into how much the employment services system is costing. So in fact, um, unless we measure the whole cost of what's happening with people who are persistently unemployed, we're not getting a, a full picture of how much employment services is costing. Uh, and this is my concern about, um, you know, in the early 2000s, the Australian unemployment system, which was outsourced, was upheld as, as a good model of an outsourced public service because it was cheaper and it moved people more efficiently into work. But the people that it didn't work for were costing the state a lot of money and that wasn't factored into that equation. Could I, could I just jump in here and um, uh, just following on from, uh, from what Bob and Sue have said, um, another interesting uh, trajectory is the the, uh, the massive changes within the labour market, the very nature of, of what we call work. Uh, and so I think we're, we're at a, a really interesting historical conjuncture because that dividing line, which was pretty black and white at, at, you know, during the time that, that Bob was referring to, is now being blurred, if not erased. So you've got a, a whole cohort of people in highly precarious work and highly casualised, highly insecure work. So I think just as um, the Labor Party uh, is committed to 
changing the narrative around industrial relations uh, and talking about, you know, reconfiguring the industrial relations system so that it is fit for purpose for, for the 21st century. We need to be pushing for a, a concomitant reconfiguration of the social security system, not as something apart from, but very much locked in with those changes to the labour market, uh, because I think we're going to see increasing complexity regarding people moving in and out of paid work and what that paid work consists of. Uh, so I, I think there's a great opportunity here to, uh, uh, you know, I, th I think on, on the Labor side of politics, there's, there's been a, a little bit of a, a historical chasm between what's considered sort of welfare stuff and workplace stuff. And I think we've got a really golden opportunity here to bring the two together. And of course, you know, going back to Sue's point, looking at you know the, the very fact that it, you know we're not talking about people not wanting to work or uh, you know being too lazy. We're talking about jobs simply not being there. So I mean, I think that you know the idea of, for instance, revisiting uh, or, or, or uh, tr trying out a version of of the uh, of the uh, uh, you know curtain white paper on full employment, you know, that kind of approach uh, would be a, a really interesting way of approaching those structural issues that uh, that drive unemployment rather than uh, adopting behavioural approaches. John, I want to stay with you and talk about some of the language that we use when we talk about people who are looking for work. In 2014, the then Australian Treasurer Joe Hockey split the country into lifters and leaners and we see some media adopt a similar tone, the dole bludgers that are the target of the Daily Telegraphs and Today Tonight's of this world. What's the impact of that sort of language and why is it used when we talk about sort of welfare policies? I, I think yeah, it's a really good question because if we want yeah if if we want to change the rules around our social security system, we need to change the story. And um Labor in government had a, a great opportunity during the GFC to explain that unemployment is structurally driven. Instead, you know, to, to, you know, it was a, a huge disappointment. It spoke about being there for workers who have lost their job through no fault of their own, if you recall, implying that everyone else obviously was to blame for, for, for not having a job. So the, the discourse is enormously important and it takes leadership to change that discourse. It takes a great deal of courage, but I think it's absolutely crucial that we change the, the discourse around social security. Uh, yeah, I, I like to think of a social guarantee uh, that is all in Encompassing, and it's not just looking at income um, income adequacy, but also housing, uh, education, further education, health, uh, trans access to transport, as well as uh, you know a, a regional approach to uh, uh, job creation with with gov a government a role for government in that. So that language is enormously um, humiliating and hurtful for pe for for the individuals. Uh, and it makes people doubt. It makes people doubt themselves and, and, and makes people feel deeply ashamed uh, of the fact that they are needing social security. So uh, it does enormous damage. Uh, I th again, I think 
there's a, a narrative opportunity here because that lifters leaners uh, paradigm is, is sort of that can be applied to uh, you know now it's, it can be sort of turned upside down and we can talk about the the corporations that don't pay their tax as as the leaners and everyone else is uh, you know is is doing the heavy lifting so I think you know and, and, and let me say 2014 I think was a an enormous political turning point uh, in in uh, not not just in um, formal politics, but in the Australian psyche, that that the uh, the the budget of 2014 went so far and was so vicious, particularly to young unemployed people, you know, wanting to cut them off, uh, you know, unemployment benefits for six months of every year. Um, I, I've never seen a reaction within the mainstream media supporting young unemployed people, and it, and it sort of brought members of the public together, thinking, well, you know. The, these young people deserve a fair go. Usually, they they, they were uh, you know, uh, vulnerable to a free kick from from anyone. But all of a sudden, people saw that viciousness, and I think it it uh, it it turned people's minds to think about what were the real reasons why people were unemployed. So, John, I think you, we look back at the twenty fourteen budget with something like horror and disbelief, perhaps, and and as you say, it 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 um, resulted in. A very dramatic reaction. But I do wonder if it also in some ways reset things a little bit so that anything that didn't look quite so mean, anything that didn't look quite so divisive was perhaps seen as more access, more acceptable. And I wanted to, to pick up on, on, on some details of, of the policies and why they play out. And again, picking up on the point that you made about shame and stigma and the, the things we make people do. So a Senate inquiry inquiry report in February of this year revealed that participants are missing paid employment in order to attend appointments with their job active provider. At the same time, Australia's community development program has been criticised for failing, particularly failing Indigenous people who were the main participants in that program. In October last year, former Deputy Liberal Leader Fred Cheney said, in my view, this policy is a national disgrace. It is a reversal of the attitudes, is a reversion to the attitudes of the past. It's another assimilationist, bureaucratic, irrelevant approach that will inflict more hardship, hunger and dysfunction on Aboriginal people. So we had all of that happening in, in 2014, but we still have some fairly serious problems that are perhaps not quite so explicit today. And Sue, I'd like to come to you and just ask how you think these schemes affect people who are already disadvantaged. Well, they compound their disadvantage, obviously, but more than that, uh, it sends a very strong message to employers that there's something wrong with the people who are in the job active system. There's something wrong with their work ethic. There's something wrong with their reliability. Uh, and, you know, when the government says, why don't more employers turn to um, publicly funded employment services to find staff, there's a, you know, they need to take responsibility for the fact that the way that unemployed people who receive income support are portrayed in the media and in politics and in policy suggests that there's really something wrong with them. And so when people are recruiting staff, what they want to do is recruit the best person who works for their competition. So what we're left with then is the people who are who are clients of Job Active are in fact the the workforce of last resort. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For any employer. Uh, and I think that the way that those people are portrayed in the media, there has to be a level of accountability for that. Let me take a slightly different tack. John, Australia has relatively low unemployment and there's very little of that sort of really grinding the most terrible forms of poverty. Is there an argument to be made that these schemes are actually working the way that we want them to? Oh, you know, what do you mean by working? If if by working you mean uh, reducing uh, welfare expenditure and, and getting people off welfare because the system is so punitive and, uh, you know, pe- people end up having to uh, scrape together a living from below the poverty line by other means, uh, then, you know, according to the, according to that objective, it's working. Um, but we know that, uh, you know, it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. And what kind of, I guess the base question is what kind of society do we want to be? Do we want to be like the United States uh, do we want to be the kind of society that uh, that that plunges people into poverty and normalises that, or do we want to be proud of a uh, having a system that provides a buffer when the labour market, you know, particularly you know, when we're talking about unemployment, when the labour market uh, is unable to provide the jobs so that people and and of course, you know, the whole question as to whether the jobs are providing a living wage is is another very live question because we know that that uh, a job is no longer a guarantee of of uh, being free of poverty. That a lot, a lot of the people that are in housing stress, for instance, are uh, are in you know, households with with one or more uh, paid paid jobs. Uh, so, you know, it goes to the question, what kind of society do we want to be? If if we want to be a society where people participate, uh, are able to be productive, are able to uh, lead happy lives, then, uh, you know, I think it's a no-brainer. And I, I think m- most people have a sense of decency that, we, you know, we don't want the kind of society where inequality is boosted and buffeted, uh, you know, in, instead of, uh, uh, you know, battled uh, through government doing what it's meant to do, and that is to reduce inequality. But we have seen some societies take a kind of fairly negative kind of lurch. I mean, Australia is not the only country in the world whose social welfare programs have got a punitive aspect. In the UK, they introduced the universal credit system, which was criticised by the UN rapporteur, Philip Alston, as for plunging people into misery and despair. What's your take on where society is going at the moment. I mean, you've set out, we need to ask ourselves the question of what sort of society we want to be, but where do you think it's actually headed? I think, first of all, we need to ask why why we have uh, gone on this path. And in answer to you know, your, your earlier question about, about us, are those programs working? Personally, I would link that uh, undermining of the social security system 
to uh, the, the 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 parallel phenomenon in in the the labour market, uh, which is you know, uh, you know, of course, attacks on the union movement and undermining wages and conditions of workers, the the Uberisation, the casualisation, or all of those effects. If you combine the two. I think the end game ends up being a, a, a lowering of labour costs. So again, that if we start with that analysis and then ask ourselves, well, what kind of society do we want? Uh, you know, where should we be going? Uh, I think the answer most people would provide is, is you know, we want to be a society where people can uh, be able to count on the fact that there's going to be a job there for them, that uh, you know, where they are treated respectfully, where they can bring home a, a wage that will meet their needs, and of course the whole cost of living uh, issue, uh, you know, needs to be uh, looked at alongside income. Uh, that people have a place to live, uh, a place to learn, a place to heal. You know, all of those elements of, of the social infrastructure are absolutely crucial if we want the kind of fair society that I think most people aspire to. And Bob, of course, critical to all of this is the role that government plays in creating that, that society. How can governments strike a balance between providing social welfare on the one hand and then also incentivising people to work? Where is that balance? Oh. The balance is where you want to put it, basically. But I mean, I think I think you should say a couple of things which are important, and that is that you can't talk about the welfare system in terms of jobs without looking at the labour market. I mean, that's basically well these these welfare programs are not su very successful at all about creating jobs. Right? You you see these figures, you know, like uh, oh, we estimate that one percent extra people got a job. Now that's means of a hundred people on the program, that's one. If you pay a thousand bucks for every hundred people, that's a hundred times a thousand and you get one job back. So they're not job creating programs. They they use that language and they try to be in terms of training people, but they're not really the jobs come out of the economy, basically, as has been said before. And the economy currently is a very strong strongly producing jobs. It's just that the jobs don't match into these tip these people. So if you look at the gig economy type jobs, so many of those jobs are taken by pretty well-educated people, you know, often people with university degrees and so on. Right? They're not really taken for the, the sort of long-term unemployed person who may have mental problems, for example. So they don't create jobs. And, this, and that really gets you to the point about what they're for. I, I, I think what they're for is not clear. I mean, if they're for creating people, giving people income and respect and so on, you think about them quite differently than if you think they're for creating jobs. And we still use the creating jobs language, but they don't really create jobs. So if you, you plot the numbers on welfare, broadly speaking, what happens if the economy booms, the number on welfare is fall, the slumps goes up. So, so that's that story. And the other thing I want to say, which I think is important, is, is if you're a person who is pro-welfare and, and want to help people on the welfare system, it's not the big bang that you're frightened of. It's not the, the ridiculous 2014 budgets. What you're frightened of is the death by a thousand cuts. Right? So, for example, I'm a lone mother with four kids. I used to be able to get a lone mother pension when the kids were 16. Then it moved to eight. 
I don't know where it is now, six, maybe even lower. Uh, I used to be able to get on to disability payments at 55 if I was, you know, now I can't. So it's, just, it's the little cuts that, that hurt you a lot. And so that's what you've got to worry about, the non-indexation of new start. So that means that if you're interested in sort of trying to expand the welfare system, you've got to be putting pressure on all the time. Right? And you've got to watch all the little cuts. Uh, so I think that's where the, the, the danger lies, really, rather than big bangs. Big bangs don't occur very often. And sometimes when they're big, you can stop them like that budget. One of the things that we like to do here on the podcast is to invite our listeners to pose questions to the panel. And we've got a question from Holly Halford-Smith, who was actually herself uh, a, a guest on the pod late last year. Um, Holly asks, how can welfare policies be adapted to accommodate individuals with invisible illnesses or disabilities who fall between the cracks from a definition standpoint? So she gives the example of those who are too impaired to function at normal and normal in inverted commas capacity and support themselves properly, but not impaired enough to worry to warrant appropriate but desperately needed support. Sue, how would you respond to Holly's question about these people who fall between the cracks? Well, there are many people um, like the ones that Holly described in Job Active now, uh, most of them in Stream C. But there are problems with the assessment process uh, that came up in the Senate inquiry that you referred to earlier. Uh, And so it does raise questions about the state's duty of care to people who have invisible disabilities or any form of undiagnosed disability that Holly's referring to. Um, Assessment of capacity to work often at the beginning hinges on self-disclosure and there are many, many people in that system um, that you'd have to say, you know, do, do they really understand the implications of what they're telling the government about their capacity to work Um, as they come into that system. But what we're seeing now is more and more people uh, who are deemed to be active job seekers who just wouldn't have been economically active in the past. Uh, And so, yeah, it's a shifting composition of job seekers. That also makes it hard to measure the um, impact of the system Mm -hmm. and how it's performed over the last 30 years Mm -hmm. as well because the people in it are all changing all the time. One idea that frequently gets talked about in when in discussions around welfare is the idea of providing a universal basic income. Um, we've heard on the pod before about the experiment in Finland where 2,000 people received a UBI of 560 euros a month for two years. And we've, in fact, spoken to the architect of that experiment, Oli Kangas, a couple of times. Uh, the Greens leader, Richard Di Natale, has thrown his weight behind the idea of a UBI, but Labor's shadow treasurer, Andrew Lee, has argued that a UBI would have less of an impact on inequality than current cash transfer schemes. Uh, so, John, what's your opinion on a universal basic income? Is it a real possibility or is it sort of a social policy unicorn? I, I would prefer to see uh, focus placed on the idea of a job guarantee and a very well-targeted social security system uh, that ensures that people don't don't live below the poverty line are and are able to participate in society. One of the issues, though, that the UBI does raise that I think is worth uh, pondering, and that is um, those, those examples of unpaid labour 
in our society, uh, the, you know, the, the, the whole, the way we conceptualise work. So, you know, particularly unpaid caring, but not exclusively unpaid caring. In fact, Francis Flanagan gave a, a lecture on, on this uh, subject very recently, uh, which, I, which I, I, I would recommend to, to people, uh, just on, on you know, the, the way we conceptualise work in our society uh, beyond its current commodification. Uh, so I think there is again. I wouldn't. I wouldn't frame that within a UBI. I'd actually think of framing that within the idea of a job guarantee, of recognising uh, examples of work that we don't currently recognise as work. I think if you're thinking about a universal basic income for everybody, you're wasting your time. If you just sit down with an envelope and work out, you know, how much you want to give to everybody, and then work out the tax implications. Of who's going to pay for it? It just doesn't add up. So, to have a meaningful conversation about universal basic income, you have to talk about excluding people, or else setting it at a ridiculously low level. Once you start thinking about excluding people, you're falling back very, very close into what we actually have now. You know, is the old age pension a universal basic income scheme for over sixty fives? So, so my take on that is that it's a good idea because it opens up the debate about what the welfare system does. But the end point, if it's pure, is not really feasible. And I think that's the sort of thing that Andrew's talking about, really. But, but that doesn't mean it can't be used positively. You, know, you can use it as a, a way of thinking about how you want to do things. So one of the things we do now in our welfare scheme, which is important, is that if you're on welfare and you take a job, then they take your welfare money away from you, right? So, and they take a, so you know you can get in England, for example, you get a job, you earn a dollar on a job, they take a dollar of welfare off. Here, we basically take roughly fifty cents. But so, how much you tax people is is an interesting point because the basic income just says it's yours. You get it full stop, right? Uh, so I see it as a way of throwing light on what we're doing, rather than as somewhere where we really should think we're actually going to get to. As we wind up our conversation, I'd like to just bring bring to the, the discussion another question from one of our listeners, this time from Mitzi Bolton on Twitter. And Sue, I might put this question to you. Mitzi asks, the public health approach has been put forward as a way to develop a more preventative rather than reactive approach to social policy. Do you think that it works as well in practice as in theory? And are there any policy areas where it could work particularly well or where we shouldn't even be thinking about it? Uh, it's a very interesting question uh, and I think it will over time become very linked to the use of big data in government as well. These are the sorts of conversations that are happening around social policy. Uh, it's very difficult in that arena to work out cause and effect uh, but I think the idea of early intervention is a good one. I think that our employment services system is increasingly operating like management of a chronic illness. So when people are persistently unemployed, they're swirling around services, they're being referred to services as they need them. They're working when they can and then they're coming into the system. So I think as a concept, that's a good way forward for, um, for policy, policy problems like long-term unemployment. So for a final question, I'd like to address this to all of you individually. If you had one piece of advice to give to governments on how to create better and fairer welfare policies, what would it be? Perhaps I'll start with you, Bob. In a narrow sense, I think the New Start payments 
too low. So I want to lift the payments. In a broader sense, I think we have to realise that if you're working on well, there's no silver bullets here. Basically, none of these schemes are going to work well. And so what we're trying to do all the time is make them work a little better and realise that what's really driving everything is the labour market. And if you think of it like that, you know, none of these things work really well and we're trying to make them a little better, then the language you discussed earlier on isn't helpful at all. Right? You know, you've got to realise you know, you, you're in a muddy area here and just trying to do the best uh, you can. For example, take the Aboriginal scheme to go back to those. If you're thinking about a small Aboriginal community with, where there are no jobs around and then you put there a program which is designed to give people jobs, and you say that's what it's got to do in that community, and there are no jobs in that community, then you're going to get criticism all the time. So you've got to recognise what you can do and what you can't do. Uh, and that was just one example, right? Whereas if, if you think about one of these things in the middle of a booming area, economically booming, it's quite a different thing. So you just have to realise it's a messy thing and get rid of the, the bad language and try and think sensibly about it. All right, so a bit more sensible thinking. That's uh, Bob's less suggestion. emotion, yeah. Less emotion. Pretty, so what? Pretty what, simple. <laughs> pretty simple stuff. So what about you, Sue? What would be your one piece of advice? I'm sure uh, Scott Morrison is listening to this podcast right now, I frantically scrabbling hope so. notes. Uh, I don't think you can have a conversation about the future of welfare without a conversation about the future of work, and I think that um, the projections made by government about the level of unemployment looking forward to, say, 2050 in the intergenerational report are vastly under what I anticipate we'll see with technological change. Uh, And so part of that conversation has to be a really serious think about redistribution of wealth. So who profits from new arrangements in the future of work And how do we ensure that people who are excluded from the labour market in that environment are still able to live and and that we can maintain social cohesion because I think that that is an essential component of welfare. Oh, very big questions. And the final word to you, John. First of all, I completely endorse what Bob and Sue have said. Uh, I would simply add that uh, all, all progressive social reform has been won by the people who are affected by the policy in question. And so if we really want to reconfigure our social security system in a way that provides social security instead of embedding social insecurity, it has to be informed by the the analysis of the people affected by uh, the the social security system at the moment, people experiencing unemployment, people uh, with a disability, students, uh, carers, uh, sole parents, uh, um, aged people, all of the people, uh, including people in the workforce, uh, particularly in low paid and insecure work. This is where we need to be informed. Uh, you know, when we try to have top-down policy thought up by people, even who think they they know best and and want the best, we end up with paternalistic interventions. Uh, uh, you know, writ large in the in the Northern Territory intervention uh, in its various iterations. You know, you know, what what we should have learnt from that is uh, it was the First Nations communities that should have been given the space to determine. Uh, how to address the, the 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 social and structural issues that were affecting them, and I, I believe wholeheartedly that the same applies right across the board for people uh, who bear the brunt of inequality. 
So Bob began that by saying that we needed some common sense. And I think what we've just heard from each of you is is deep wisdom and common sense. It's a fantastic conversation. Um, so you made the, the point that we can't think about welfare without work. And I guess I would just add to that, when we think about work, we also need to think about unpaid work, caring work and contribution to the community as we go forward. But thank you so much for this discussion. It's been fantastic food for thought. I don't know if Scott Morrison was listening, but I will be certainly recommending to my students that they should listen. <laughs> so Bob Gregory, Sue Olney, John Felzon, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So thanks once again to our guests today. It was an absolutely fantastic discussion. I'd like to say that Sue has stuck around with Sharon for the uh, final part of our podcast here, uh, where we'll be going over some of your feedback, some of your questions, and some of your comments. And the first one that I want to touch on is the podcast that we put out recently, which was called The Policy and Politics of Refugees and Asylum Seekers. It had Bina DaCosta, Marianne Dickey, and and Mark Kenny and I, and on the podcast, the panelists looked at refugee and asylum seeker policy, both in a global context and in Australia, while also discussing the extreme politicisation of these issues and the consequences that's brought. And we had a comment from uh, Neymar on Twitter, who wrote, "This pod makes me rethink of humanised policy and respond to refugees and asylum seeker crisis. Aside from economic economics-driven policies, uh, social policies with humanitarians." essence are legitimately needed to provide a better response. I also agree that the narrative should be shifted from the quantity of forcibly displayed people to how their lives as human beings have been destroyed as a result of bad policies. I truly enjoyed this pod. Thanks for bringing this up. Thank you for that lovely feedback. That's really appreciated. Sharon, what are your thoughts on those comments? I think that podcast was a fantastic conversation that just brought both some depth and, as Naima says, some humanity to the discussions that we're having around around these issues in a seemingly endless way. I mean, there's been steps forward, but then we see another step back. And I think that point that Naima makes about focusing the shift to the fact that we are actually dealing with human beings here, we're dealing with people's lives, and that needs to be certainly a significant part, if not at the centre, I would argue at the centre of policy debates around these issues, you know, the dehumanisation of human beings in the recent debates around refugees and asylum seekers has been terribly disturbing and I think corrodes us as a, as a society when we allow those kinds of discourses to emerge. There are some similarities in terms of the way that we talk about refugees and asylum seekers with the way that we talk about people who are on benefits. We talked about some of the language of lifters and leaners and dull bludgers and things like that. What are your thoughts on all of this? So about, uh, particularly in regards to Neymar's comment about, you know, shift, shifting the narrative around how we, how we talk about these types of issues. I think in this sort of policy space, storytelling becomes very important because um, empathy does often drive policy change. If people can see themselves in the in the narrative about what's happening to people, that can really change their minds about what needs to be done to address it. Uh, and the sort of language that you're talking about there is not limited to Australia. It's uh, We see it around the world in the way that people talk about um, unemployed people and refugees as if it's a threat to, um, you know, hardworking people, uh, a threat to their way of life. And that's why the stories are so important in that policy space. And I think arguably, you know, the, the 
developments that we've seen around finally moving children away from, from Nauru to, to, to other places has in part been because of the power of those stories that have been told. Um, you know, those campaigns I think wouldn't have been as successful had it not been for the, the real life stories about real children and their families. I want to shift tack completely now and have a look at a piece that went up on our website, policyforum.net, and it was called In Defence of Silent Invasion. It was written by Kevin Carrico. And in the piece, he writes that China's interference in Australia is becoming increasingly evident, so it's high time that Clive Hamilton's book, Silent Invasion, and the warnings against uh, Chinese, the Chinese party state be taken more seriously. Now, we had so many comments on this. It was hard to uh, pick out ones to actually have a chat about. But there was one by M. Van Langenberg who wrote, given Australian participation in the Anglo-American Imperium since the early 19th century, it's not surprising that the title of Hamilton's book should resonate with conspiracy and hyperbole. If there is a silent invasion by air quotes them and air quotes we ignore it, how will it play out? What do you reckon about all of this, Sharon? Yeah, I think whenever we enter this, this you said that we're taking a, a completely different tack, but maybe we're not in some ways. We're still talking about them and us. You know, whenever we get into debates that start to be framed about them and us, we kind of fall into binaries and then stereotypes and then perhaps not very sophisticated ways of talking. Um, so I, I think you know, um, the the comment on what policy forum is right in terms of avoiding that kind of binary. Um, but I think you know Clive Hamilton's book was certainly controversial, but it continues to raise debate and perhaps debate on important policy issues is a good thing. It's certainly very influential. What about your thoughts on all this? Though? I think we're seeing increasingly that uh, that the impulse to get your wagons in a circle when there's a, a, an unknown threat um, is what's happening politically around the world and also in policy. Uh, so this is another example, I think. Well, thank you so much for everyone for all of your comments there. We really appreciate them and do keep them coming in. You can reach us on Twitter where we're Apps Policy Forum. You can join our Facebook podcast group, which is Policy Forum Pod, or just drop us a line, podcast at policyforum.net. And we're always keen to get your thoughts. Uh, Thanks also to our iTunes listener, JKCCM, who left us a review titled Smart People Talking About Complex Issues. I'm presuming they mean you here, Sharon, rather than me, and wrote that this is a great podcast taking an evidence-based approach with experts discussing the thorny issues of the day. What a lovely review. Many thanks for that, JC, JKCCM. It's really appreciated. And you can leave your own review on iTunes podcast and give us a rating while you're there. Just find that fifth star. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, in hope of some poetry next time around. Bye-bye for now. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.